Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. So this time we got a bit of stuff about the uh, <clears throat> election. Obviously happened on Tuesday and is still going on. Um, there's uh, They're still counting the votes in a bunch of districts in California. Uh, they're still counting them in Florida. And just this evening um, and over the past, uh, the past few hours, the margins have been getting narrower and narrower and narrower in California, and I, I believe they are headed for a recount in both of the uh, uh, the the Senate race and the governor's race. Uh, in, in Florida, in Florida, yes. Um, Kristen Cinema in um, in Arizona has just pulled ahead of. Uh, Mary McSally, something McSally. What's uh, and um, any you know, it's anybody's guess where uh, those ones will land up. But so far, you know, according to the um, you know, just just uh, checking the New York Times uh, uh, results page here, the the Democrats have gained thirty seats. And there are still like about ten or or eleven that are still being counted, and the Democrats are leading in uh, about five or six more of those. So we're looking at thirty six, thirty seven seats that they've gained. So huge sweep for them at the House level, uh, you know historically speaking you know given the the size of the republican majority which was not that big the the strong economy which is i would say stronger than it's been especially relative to the horrible um background conditions um that have persisted since since 2008 best economy since the late 90s i would say over the last year and especially in just even the, the months before the election, things really trended up pretty strongly. Wages are growing strongly in nominal terms, so people are getting pay raises. Um, the fraction of the uh, you know prime working age population with a job is like squarely in kind of historically pretty good territory. Uh, inflation is zip. Um, unemployment is 3.7%. It's lower than it's been in like four 40 years or something. And I think that still over uh, understates the amount of slack there is left in the economy. And nevertheless, that's a low, low unemployment rate. And still Republicans got absolutely smashed. Um, you know, the, 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 I think the, the, the closest comparison, you know, you look at 2010 when, uh, Republicans won the House of Representatives from the uh, the the Democrats, and there they won like sixty seats or something like that. Like it was a it was a huge victory. But key differences there: number one, Democrats were 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 sitting on a wave election from the previous year, so they had a huge majority that had a lot of very weak seats in it. And number two, more importantly by a lot, is that the economy was terrible. Unemployment was nine point eight percent, I believe, in November twenty ten. Um, you know, the foreclosures were cresting. It was really, really, really bad. All the all those indicators I mentioned previously were absolutely in the toilet. You know, at like historic lows from the in the post war era, and. Um, that's when you know you look at history that's when wave elections happen they happen when there's when the economy is is in the crapper um you know that's what happened in 1932 that's what happened in 19 uh, 1874 1896 um you know there's a really bad recession during the election that's uh you know that's usually what does it but here we have a wave election that i would say is like you know i think it's the sixth biggest wave election um, since uh, the end of World War II, and it happens in a really strong economy. So basically, the, the Trump Republican Party is not popular. So 
in the Senate, though, you know, Dem- uh, Republicans made some gains. They knocked off Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota. They knocked off Claire McCaskill in Iowa. Uh, they knocked off Joe Donnelly in Indiana. And they maybe knocked off Bill Nelson in Florida. Though, as I said before, we'll see. that looks getting closer. Yeah, that looked to be uh, a sure thing, but now it's going to a recount, so we don't know. Um, and yeah, Arizona. Did you, did you go ahead? Did you mention the recount and for uh, the gubernatorial race in Georgia? Oh yeah, that one too. So yeah, uh, governors' races. Um, uh, Democrats gained seven seats. They they gained them in Nevada, New Mexico, Kansas, Illinois, Wisconsin. Ah, uh, yes. Huge. Scott Walker finally went we, down. This ham meat, this ham motherfucker finally... Finally got what was coming to him, which was... <laughs> Did you see the uh, AFL-CIO, uh, I don't know if they're... I think there were memos about Scott Walker over the years, and, and they were like, one line, Scott Walker is a national disgrace, and then uh, I think now it, the the one that came out is Scott Walker was a national disgrace, <laughs> it's like, or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's still a disgrace, but he's no longer national. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think that gives you a good sense of the depth of bitterness that is felt among working people, you know, organized labor for this guy who has just been an absolutely fanatical, you know, assassin of the working class in Wisconsin. And he finally, this Tony Evers guy who beat him is a pretty milquetoast, total non-entity. Nobody really paid attention to him before the election, but he... uh, Hmm. You know, he was, it was a su- sufficiently, I mean, I'm sure he worked pretty hard, but he didn't get anything like Beto O'Rourke got um, in terms of attention. Uh, but it was just, you know, it's like, okay, he's good enough, whatever. Can't be, you know, got to be better than this guy. <laughs> oh, and also in Maine, they beat that psycho Paul LePage is no longer governor of Maine. Guy was super crazy. He's still super crazy. But. Yeah. And so they're headed for a recount in Georgia where uh, Stacey Abrams um, was locked in a battle with uh, Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp notoriously uh, doing stuff that, you know, you basically would associate with like Eastern Bloc pseudo democracies where he was the the candidate for the election and running the election as the Georgia Secretary of State. And he was just flagrantly cheating Um some of his efforts to like disenfranchise Democrats, I think, were stopped by the, uh, the you know, federal courts and such. But um, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like you don't even bother to pretend. It's. Do you see that he stepped down now? Yeah, finally. Yeah, it's something he could have done. You know, just and even as not, even if you didn't step down as Secretary of State, you could just say you were recusing yourself from any election-rated matters, which if anyone has had even the slightest whiff of respect for the norms of democracy would have done immediately, if not re- resigned. But Republicans cheat, and this is classic Jim Crow shit, you know. But even that, it was is really close. Uh, just looking at the, you know, where it's so Brian Kemp... Uh, they're they're within like a point and a half basically, and I think the the news was as of this uh, this this evening it's going to a re- it's, no it's going to a runoff that's right because yeah not a recount a runoff that's a runoff right. on December fourth because he didn't get because fifty percent uh, that's right you have to clear you have to get a majority and if nobody gets a majority then then you have a runoff election and it's because some third candidate libertarian or something yeah yeah. Ted Metz. So libertarians are good for something. That's good. That's right. They are. <laughs> it's funny, you know, you, you you hear liberals complaining about the Green Party all the time. And I think that, like, in many cases, in terms of just, like, pure ta- political tactics, what the Green Party spends its time doing um, in, you know, 
do conducting very expensive litigation to stay on the ballot in all 50 states is kind of not worth doing but on at the same time uh there's also other you know there's like the constitution party the libertarian party and they're hemorrhaging votes from the right as well and those you know i think this i mean what it goes to show and why i think it's very dumb to complain about the green party not voting for democrats is because the the types of people that vote for the green party are are there people who are so dissatisfied with american democracy that they they they, they basically re- stay home yeah they regard the democratic party as like irredeemably corrupt yes. you know yes they would they would for the most part rather stay home than than help the the democrats yeah. and also it does some work right like more fringe parties do some work to put pressure uh on the two main parties and and the, yeah. the shit two party system that we have that's that's one way to influence it and uh and try to co-opt those fringes so they don't get too big to do the spoiler act. Um, but, you know, there was a good response on Twitter that I saw to, to someone complaining about, uh, you know, if we didn't have the Green Party, then there wouldn't be um, these obstacles for the Democratic Party. And, and the response by someone was, you know, it would be really helpful to the Democratic Party if the Republican Party didn't exist. That would be, <laughs> that would be a tremendous help. That would be yeah. like a, a, a great one-party system. They would never lose. And, and so I thought that was a great response because it just shows like you can't like erase the politics part of, of winning power, right? Like you have to, you have to, to win the votes, you know? Yeah, right. And, the, you know, I mean, the, the problem of, of third party like spoiling and, and, and splitting is really, I think, at bottom a reflection of our incredibly stupid and anachronistic system of government. Um, yes. You know, you... you democracies only work if people have a a moral ethical ideological sense that voting is a civic duty like you got to go and vote you got to do it because you you need to do it because it's your right as a citizen blah blah blah, all those sorts of like romantic notions so if you're thinking about this in like rational terms like like in terms of I should say economic rational terms like is it worth me spending my time to go and wait in line and cast the ballot? Absolutely not. It is all. What is the chance of your vote being the deciding one? Zero in almost every case. And so why bother? And and well, and that's yeah. When people make the the argument, Dan Davies wrote a great post about this. When people make the argument against to say like even if you're a leftist, you should vote for Democrats on basically cynical tactical reasons the most cynical tactical thing to do would be to not bother to vote at all because your vote Which a lot of people do literally yeah. doesn't matter in in terms of like direct concrete effects you know obviously sometimes it does you know and like there are very very close elections sometimes and i'm not saying you shouldn't vote i'm well, saying that this and, this and is how the, the 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 rationales conflict with each other the rationale yes yes yeah because the thing is ryan uh and I guess I didn't realize we'd get into theory this quickly. I thought we were going to shoot the shit a bit about yeah, <laughs> we can do the, that. the interpretation we'll, we'll, of what the results mean. Go That's ahead. That's what I do, though, right? Yeah. No, so I, I just you just got me going a bit about the kind of uh, classical liberal uh, economic rationalist ontology or picture of what the world is and how it operates. And, and it, it's pictured as a bunch of individuals that are atomistically uh, apart unrelated unconnected from each other and that would be true if that was the reality but the, you know there there is data even for these folks that shows that if you vote there are kind of i don't know if the cascade effect is, is the is the term for it but there are, are uh correlations where a hundred other people will vote if you vote there's like some some kind of uh network effect or something like that right yeah and the idea is we aren't existing and acting and thinking alone. We're parts of webs of interconnected relationships and communities. And um, and the truth is that uh, people are affected in, in, in groups and they affect each other and what they do and what they think. So so it's a silly way to, to think of it for the, for the first uh, in the first place, right? Um, so that's true. But also, there's a reason that Rousseau and the more communitarian or, or communal um, classical Republican political philosophers who focused on um, democratic 
uh, like direct democratic ways of operating uh, in the social contract, rather than kind of a Lockean um, individual uh, oikos or household-based um, way of thinking through what makes a society and politics meaningful. Um, there's a reason that they focus on kind of what Rousseau would call the general will or cultivating an understanding of what you should do that serves the common good and what everyone should do that serves the common good. Uh, apart from the, did we talk, I think we might've talked about the will of all versus general will. The will of all is just the aggregation of everyone's particular interests that they have for themselves. And so in the same way that if you thought of it that way, no one would, would want to pay taxes because in their interest, someone else should always pay the taxes. Yeah. But if you aggregated all of that, there'd be no fucking taxes. Nothing would be spent. No one would get any help. So the, the, will, the will of all is bad. And the general will is when you think of aligning your will with that which should be willed generally by all to serve the common good. And that's when you try to think in, in a way that's truly communal. And, and, um, and so, you know that's where we have to, to find meaning, I think, in, in these kind of um, interpretations of the political results. Um, so I went off in the theoretical deep end a little bit, but <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can bring us back. Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, uh, I, I, that's absolutely right. I, and, and I think that concretely, if, you know, when you're talking about designing political institutions, the way to allow the citizenry to express that general will in a much more uh, sensible and dare I say it technocratically effective fashion is to have a multi-party parliamentary system which is obviously Amen, a superior way to organize a country and in that case you know you have your sort of left coalition and your right coalition and people vote their conscience and they can vote their conscience knowing that you're not doing a spoiler effect and that you're actually making a meaningful choice and it's not just right. a two-party duopoly where your your particular set of reasons as is like like basically forbidden structurally from having an uh, any effect, you know? Because that that joke yep. you said about you know one party one party state, I think it was Liz Burnick who made that joke. But you know it it's that's a, it's funny, but at the um, you know the reality at the. Uh, in just in structural terms is that the United States is like a two party state. Like it, like more or less, yep. you know, third parties exist well, in places with first past the post voting in Canada and, and uh, the, the UK. It's just in the, you know, the U S third parties are basically legally harassed out of like, like actual political existence. Um, right. Yeah. And I would even say that, when Noam Chomsky said a long time ago that there's only one party, the business party, but there are two wings of the business party, and it actually matters which wing, like people's lives are actually affected by which wing gets elected. I think that was a, a great way to put it. Um, I, I think it's true that there's one party, it's the business party, and the business class, the donor class is ultimately, right, the oligarchy is ultimately the one being served by our two political parties, right? But, you know, which wing of the business party gets elected actually tangibly changes the number of lives that get killed around the world in wars, uh, although that's less of a difference seemingly than domestically and, and how we treat the poor and, and how we treat healthcare and so forth. But um, there is still, as we saw, I think, a strategic and not just a principled reason to not just vote for, say, the Democrats, but try to change who runs as a Democrat and to get like democratic socialists running and to, to show the world that expanding as like Megan day wrote this, this take in Jacobin, the midterms, winners, losers. Right. And, um, very, and, uh, uh, very Vox style of uh, format. Yeah. It's a great article. Yeah, but it's great. So, but, but she says, you know, political campaigns, quote, political campaigns are always either expanding or constricting the imagination of the public. And so that's, that's true, right? So you can electorally also influence um, the extent to which one of those two parties specifically has the ability to change people's lives for the better and save lives and shift um, the ideology and, and try to, to maybe, even if it's going to be a two-party system, pull one of the parties a little bit further away from um, the interests of the oligarchs. That's worth, that's worth doing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you can, um, you know, you. I think that that 
one reason that you, the United States is not, you know, a, a, it still has meaningful democratic elements, whether we call it a democracy or not, um, it's the, the, this, the, there is an opportunity for meaningful uh, political contestation within this sort of like this very loose jointed two party structure. And in some ways, you know, like the multi party thing is happening within, you know, the democratic right. coalition. You know, you sort of have like what who people who would be in the UK, like liberal Democrats, like Chuck Schumer, um, who are in there. And then you have people who would be, uh, you know, Labor Party, Jeremy Corbyn types of people also in there, you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, is, is officially, uh, won her election. She'll be going, did you see this story, by the way? She apparently, apparently is like real, can't afford, she's real broke. (laughs) She has three months before she starts serving and gets paid by, by our federal government and, uh, doesn't know if she can't wait, she has to wait to, to get a DC apartment for a couple months or or so yeah this like you know i mean i laugh obviously like it's a very cute story and and i should say she posted on twitter that she's she's not in any danger of like you know yeah destitution or anything pretty pretty illuminating that we haven't heard this uh this from others and look it's already really difficult to run for office in this country because of the way that you have to either be like independently wealthy, uh, not worry if you lose having left a job or, you know, you have to have some ability. It's, it's uh, yet another uh, underappreciated, under-discussed obstacle to representatives actually um, being one of the masses rather than um, some elite who doesn't really need to work but just wants to aggregate wealth and power. So uh, it's, 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 it's a nice story in the sense that it's good that there's somebody who um, a lot of people can relate to that is now in the, the halls of power. Yeah, exactly. Well, and <clears throat> to, to, to turn back to my um, original point, though, that, that uh, you know, that, that these parties are not like cast in stone, I'm right. thinking of the 1924 uh, election this is when aren't we all aren't we all yes it's one of my favorite elections so this this <laughs> was when uh calvin coolidge won uh his his full term because he he took uh he took off he uh coolidge obviously took if you don't know the history he took office after harding died in 1923 um and <clears throat> So the Democrats ran John W. Davis, who is a Wall Street banker, very conservative. And so there was basically no difference at all between the parties. Oh, and also uh, Bob LaFollette ran. Uh, Bob, Bob LaFollette Sr. ran in the Progressive Party. And I think he won one state. Yes, he did. He won just Wisconsin. Bob. So anyways. Way to go, Bob. Um yeah, so like you had conservative, you had a business capitalist conservative Calvin Coolidge and running against a business capitalist conservative John Davis. And Calvin Coolidge, because he was the incumbent, absolutely wiped the floor with him. It was like 54% to 28%. Um, and uh, so eight years after that, FDR is elected. And suddenly now you actually have something that is sort of maybe you wouldn't call it like t- totally social democratic, but but very, very, very f- hard swing to the left from the from the, um, you know, from the posture of 1924. And that, you know, it's just it's it was it was because there was a lot of politics happening in there and the union people, the you know the welfare people the like all everybody who argued for more progressive egalitarian egalitarian politics uh you know they they basically took power in the high in the highest levels of the party and at the same time uh you know these these structures grew up which 
push the party to the left. You know, you, like these big unions yeah. who, you know, put tons of pressure on FDR to do the things that he ended up doing. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's, again, remember when I wrote something up and I sent to you on, on Ernst Bloch and um, process ontology and temporality and the way that we think of the past as mere trajectory, but Bloch shows that it's also a rupture, but we forget about that part of the past and how there are these um, sharp changes from trajectory to rupture. Um, and so when we look into the future, we kind of circumscribe our own limits of what's possible because we, we think that it has to just be on the same trajectory as what we imagined the past was. The remember that? Sort of, um, I vaguely remember that. It's, it's like a Stephen Jay Gould in a punctuated equilibrium. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to, to think of it. But, um, but yeah, part of the problem we have before us is one of, um, you know, Megan Day talked about political imagination, and, and a lot of people talk about, um, you know, I tell my students we have to... Uh, you know, we have the numbers, they have the, the power and the wealth, but we have the numbers, but the numbers only matter if you educate and motivate. And so we have, um, we have to get people to care, get off the couch, not just vote, but organize. And, you know, Dave, Dave Kaib talks about slack as a huge thing in politics. And there's just a tremendous underappreciated amount of slack in the system and a lot of action that could be done. Uh, when you see victories like we see now, uh, where, you know, besides Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez winning and really her victory was in the, in the primary, but still she is, she's now the, the youngest woman, uh, ever in, in the, uh, United States Congress. Right. And, um, is she the youngest ever? Yeah. I wow. believe so. Pretty cool. There's another cool. woman who's just behind her. Who's also 29. Abby, uh, Finkenauer. Tremendous. Tremendous. I, I really do think that if, if the old people just died in power, <laughs> that would do like 90% of the work. Not uh, uh, not but, the Supreme Court justices, though. No, no. RBG's you know, got to cling to life for another few we years. Should, we should rip out Dick Cheney's artificial heart and put it in her or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, so, <laughs> in any case, uh, the... Uh, point i was making is that uh julia salazar right is is in the state senate in the state senate in new york huge flip to the democrats uh but another democratic socialist and you know franklin bynum who is houston socialist judge right yeah uh, another we gotta another get him on the Democrat. podcast that would be great i think uh i think that would be wonderful we have to celebrate these victories to give the hope that the political imagination and will to change can can keep moving in this direction. So I, yeah, we have to remember that the past is also not what we think it was, that it can change drastically, that parties and ideologies can shift and that we have agency in that. So, yeah, um, this is a, to bring it back to this midterm election, um, you know, uh, you had these, these very charismatic uh, f- folks running in Texas and Florida Beto O'Rourke in Texas and Andrew Gillum in Florida. I think both of them really were very impressive uh, political talents. I think that Andrew Gillum is better in terms of politics. Uh, He, he made, he made a bit of, he, he made what seemed to me like a pretty clear tactical feint to the center, but he still ran a very solidly progressive uh, campaign um, yes. And he is very, you know, you watched him in the debates, you watched him during the election, and um, he was just a very, he's just a very able politician. It reminded me of watching Obama, not just because he's black, obviously, but just because, like, Obama's a magnificent political talent, really, really good. And yes. this, this, I, this struck me as similar. O'Rourke, also quite solid. And I think the um, the thing about O'Rourke in Texas, obviously he lost, but he 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 got within what two percent? Let's let me look at this. Yes. Yeah, fifty. Very very close. He got yeah less than three percent. This was like two point seven percent. Looks like, and in Texas that is that is huge. Um, and he had coattails. 
at the local and the and the and the state level. So he brought in probably two or three uh, n- uh, new. Like he f- he f- he flipped a couple of districts. He brought in some people, and he uh, uh, the the whole the whole Republican like judicial slate in Texas in uh, in in Houston and Dallas was wiped out, and so our our uh, uh, that that Burnham fellow is one of those people. I think you know maybe he would have won without Beto, but like that you you could clearly see across the state that these. Uh, you know the, the the effect of having a very charismatic. It was sort of a quasi presidential effect, having a very charismatic, very very popular, getting a lot of attention and money. He had a ton of fundraising. You know, he brought some people along. I think they've. No, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, I th- I th- no, I was going to say. So it's easy to get caught up in the fucking anti democratic system we have is so frustrating, and and the fact that the the Senate got what like nine to 10 million more votes for uh, Democratic senators. Uh, and yet the, the Democrats didn't take, you know, an overall uh, advantage in, in the Senate. Uh, and you can you can think of all these things. But at the same time, even given the voter suppression, uh, even given the anti-electoral or I'm sorry, the anti-democratic um, obstacles, this does show a real strong, as you said, especially in the backdrop of the of the economy and, and all those um, comparative factors to, to previous elections. A strong, strong uh, leftist, I think specifically, influence and surge uh, nationwide. You have uh, ideological winners who supported Medicare, Medicare for All. You have the huge victory uh, with the amendment in Florida and other states, I believe, but, but Florida is the big one, where uh, former felons are now enfranchised. So like a million people that couldn't vote before now can vote. Yeah, forty uh, percent so of the, all the black men in Florida just got their voting I, rights back. I mean, that's incredible. Just an incredible victory for democracy and for citizenship and for um, you know reversing some racist uh, disenfranchising. Uh, so, so that's I think you know there's lots of micro analysis that can be done here and there, and it could have gone this way, it could have gone that way. But like the big picture, I think needs to consider that although there are these kind of alt-right populist uh, strongholds and still some um, support for kind of Trump-style politics and policies, uh, you know, there is this thirst, I think, for um, lefty populism. Because I think that the Democrats that didn't do well are the ones that tacked to the center, tacked right. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, this this has been a this has been a subject for discussion. Um I'm not really convinced by either side. Uh Excellent. You know, well, that's so, a good place so, to, to start. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so so to start with, um you know, uh Yeah, so I think it's like you can, you can adduce evidence on either side of this uh debate. Um, so, you know, you look at Claire McCaskill in Missouri, uh, she's very moderate. She ran a, uh, what, what, like right towards the end, especially she broke against the caravan that Trump, uh, you know, was just constantly whipping up racist kind of exterminationist rhetoric about, which by the way, yeah, she was strong on borders and strong on immigration. By the it was w- a very like provi- provincialist kind of um, campaign too, where she's like, "I love every part of <laughs> Missouri," you know, like every corner of it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, oh yes, and by the way, they the Trump has completely stopped paying attention to that, and so has the mainstream media. They've completely forgotten about it. It's just like Ebola in 2014. It was a convenient campaign prop, and now it's gone. But yeah, so she lost. Joe Donnelly, another conservative Democrat, lost. Um, but Joe Manchin, who is probably the most conservative Democrat, he's running in a state that Trump won by 40 points, I think. He won, and it wasn't even very close. It was like 56, 43 or something like that. 
Um, Joe, uh, uh, John Tester in Montana won. He is not, uh, he's much more liberal than, than, uh, um, Manchin, but he's also not like a socialist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, can we call him, can we call Manchin Munchkin? I just kind of want to call him Munchkin. <laughs> you can, yeah. And so M- Munchkin, though, unfortunately might have been benefited from his bullshit Kavanaugh uh, dance and ultimate support because of the, well, demograph- demographics in West Virginia, perhaps, uh, of his support. Yeah. Um, yeah, but Tester voted against Kavanaugh, and he won. Right. Um, so my general takeaway oh wait then there's one more data point here which is the 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 incredible success of of lefty ballot initiatives so you had you had ballot initiatives to expand medicaid in uh i idaho i believe and um utah a number of conservative states idaho nebraska and utah yeah, all all expanded Medicaid, right? Um, and and then there is also medical marijuana initiatives, and those all passed. Um, I think every one of them. Yeah, so we have a minimum wage increase in Missouri and Arkansas. Expanded Medicaid in Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho, and uh, and as we said before, in Florida. Uh, we got voting rights to 1.2 million people and uh and then you know marijuana initiatives in a number of of states as well and so you know so, so you can vote high if you want <laughs> absolutely yeah and these um the these were in you know like a lot of very conservative states and i think that uh yeah, you had yeah Michigan, Utah, and Missouri for marijuana. Um, so not you know, although it did fail in in North Dakota, but the you know, the point being that you you have these, you put lefty policies, most of them at least like some climate carbon tax stuff did fail, on the ballot. They do much better than actual Democratic candidates almost across the board. Um. And I guess, like, my general takeaway is that uh, if you're in an individual election, ideology is only sort of tangentially related to how well somebody does. Like, I think it does matter. You know, you you can't be too out of step with the background. Like, uh, in Tennessee, I think that uh, Bredesen, what the hell is his name? The Democrat who was running for a Senate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry for screwing up yet another pronunciation. No, no, you have to. That is required. Every episode, I got to do that. He said Absolutely. that he was going to vote for Kavanaugh. And that was just like, like, I apparently just totally took the wind out of his sails in terms of organizing. And it was also a thing like, he's not in the Senate. He doesn't have to vote. He could have just kept his mouth shut. Um, so, you know, you have to be tactically savvy in that sense to where you you know you if if people are really really energized about a certain thing and you know medicare for all uh uh you know voting rights um maybe back in the day women's suffrage or something like that like you don't want to step afoul of that but at the same time i think that like candidate ability matters maybe quite a bit more than your explicit yeah, ideology in the moment. Right. We've talked about it. And look, so, so there's, um, there's a lot of interesting things that, that to read about this peculiar representative democracy that we have, right. This representative system. <laughs> and, and it's, it, it's explicitly not a democracy in, in any number of ways. Right. So like if you think about, so uh, Bernard Manet, you know, because it's a French name and I have to pronounce it. It's M-A-N-I-N. Mene. I don't know. Uh, ah, see case, what it's like. Yeah, well, no, I, I think I did okay. So you're the one that has to totally screw it up. I can just, you know, Damn it. get it slightly, slightly off. Yeah. Uh, no, so um, 
So he writes about, in contrast to, say, ancient Athens, for example, uh, where, oh, did, did we ever talk about the attempted bombing in D.C. with with the guy that um, that essentially wanted to bring attention to the ancient Greek uh, way of doing democratic selection of representatives or of of um, I don't of think the I've heard of pub- this. Oh, really? Oh, this dude. I, I don't know how long ago it was. A month ago, he um, he had a massive amount of explosives that he was going to set off uh, on the mall. You know, between the Capitol and, and the White House and so forth. Or, or, you know, you live in D.C. You know them all. But uh, that's not even what it's between. It's between the Capitol and um, the Washington Monument. That's the mall. What do I know? The mall is between the Lincoln Memorial and the Capitol Building. The Lincoln Memorial and the Capitol. So. Um, it's called being patriotic. So you should look this up. Yeah. <laughs> So he 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 was uh, prevented from setting off. I don't know if it was two hundred pounds of explosives, some massive massive bomb. Uh, he had this purpose to bring attention to uh, selection by lot, which is the way that he thinks democracy should work, like it did in ancient Athens, where your representatives are literally just you know picked <laughs> picked in a lottery, um, and and instead of having elections and voting for people. Because this this crazy guy is correct, actually, that true democracy looks something like that, where um, where you know you have a willing pool of people who throw their hat in or their name into the hat, and and then it's just like get in there and serve, and then come back out and someone else get in there, and that's that's the people governing themselves, right? But to have elections is to already make it aristocratic. Because what an election is, by its very nature, is to say you're choosing, so you're, you're choosing the best among the options. And of course, aristocracy comes from the Greek word uh, ariston, which means the best. So rule by the best. And so in, in an election, just by its definition, whatever the election is, you are determining by some uh, criteria who is best to serve. And uh, once they are elected you've basically stopped your participation in the democratic process because your only function is essentially um, voting up or down, right? Uh, Every time there's an election, you vote up or down. And so the real power is in the hands of the people deemed the best by the people uh, to shape legislation, to do anything they want. The only pressure on them is their anticipation of what they will think you would do <laughs> once you look retrospectively at what they did in the next election and vote in, in your voting. And, and that is the only pressure. Everything else is in their hands. So it is fundamentally, right, not democratic in operation in all these ways. And there's other things like you can put pressure um, by, you know, the, the marches and having other elite leaders um, pressuring them give signals that when their turn to be voted up or down comes around, they might win or lose, right? But, um, you know, this this is just a, a long-winded way of saying that um, we have to really be excited when these referendums or uh, democratic will shining through actually happens. Because for the most part, it's just this very attenuated influence that the people uh, usually have in our system with who gets to run, what they do, and and very often whether they stay in power or not. So, yeah, I mean, I would say I'm I'm a I'm a little bit more skeptical of referendums. I think that if you that type of mm. direct democracy would maybe be just as vulnerable to capture by the elite interests as the as the kind we have now. You know, in this system, in this system. So you're yeah. right. So any anything, even if it's more democratic in its own right, which by definition, like a referendum is more democratic in its own right than electing some usually white dude to decide things for you. But that being said, in a system like this and in capitalism, which, of course, right, conditions our subjectivities, our interests, uh, takes away our time, enervates us and influences us through marketing, propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, of course, that diminishes the, the, the popular will or ability to either shape what referenda 
uh, go up and, and, you know, understanding whether they're good for the right, whether the actual general will is being served uh, involves education and, and any number of things. So that's true. So there has to be like a systemic change, um, you know, in the political economy and the political structures uh, before truly democratic um, will to serve the common good can can be pervasive, right? So, but you know, it's it's a long march towards that, right? And so, so there are um, places where we can where we can celebrate when the outcome is, in fact, a good one, like the enfranchisement of a million and more people in Florida. Um, but yeah, so like Brexit and any number of things you might say. But this is though an important thing to clarify because you do get. Uh, those that poo-poo, like, I'm, I haven't read it yet, but it was New Yorker magazine here, this uh, uh, the brand new New Yorker. Too much democracy. Were we better off when the parties had more control over candidates? That's literally, right, the, the latest issue. Yeah, this, so this I, is I wanna... the big hot take among political scientists recently. The Democracy for Realists crowd said democracy is bad because voters are stupid. Right. So I want to guard against that. Yeah framing as well yeah no definitely and i i think that's yeah that the 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 objection that i would have to maybe certain types of referendum like i think people could make a good choice they could make a meaningful choice on on um uh, marijuana or you know felon reenfranchisement and so forth i don't i think that if you get into more complicated questions that then it's like Mm, can can people really make a choice, that meaningful choice, on something that they maybe don't understand? And in that case, like delegation makes sense in terms of where like the party isn't the party isn't going to ch- choose for you. Ideally, at least, the party is going to represent your interests by like having a sort of bureaucracy that can litigate these questions, and you pick the the party that you think is associated with your interests and then they do the complicated and often very annoying work of figuring out, you know, what the optimal tax rate on aluminum imports should be. Um, and that, you know, cause I don't think ordinary people, you know, I don't, I'm a, I'm a, you know, political journalist and I don't know what the optimal tax rate on imported aluminum should be. Like, I think that would, well, don't look, don't forget that, like, what gets on a ballot, what becomes of political concern such that it becomes open to referendum vote, you know, needs to be investigated, too. Because, like, um, we have these proxies, as you say, that are supposed to represent certain interests, not just in government, but whether it's the ACLU or other other proxies that do help uh, your average Joe Schmo who's working all the time and can't stay up on, on all the, the latest, like you say, technocratic insights. But the question is like, if those in certain uh, groups of expertise are suggesting that there's a problem or something could really be helpful, uh, you know, then I think people could get informed by those groups in a way that they could be informed voters for such a thing. But but usually, like, most of the fundamental needs that people have don't have to do with fucking, like, aluminum. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, 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 there doesn't need to... So, so, like, if somebody is trying to put on the ballot something really obscure and weird, oh, maybe there might be special interests behind that. Like, moneyed interests might be interested in, in kind of, like, hoodwinking you into thinking this is in your favor and making some convoluted issue something they can they can pull, uh, you know, a fast one on, on you with. Uh, whereas for the most part, right, like the things that really matter aren't that complicated. And actually, you're going to find out about if you have those proxies to inform you and if you get informed on your own right. Like Jeff Spross was just tweeting, I think, about how he thinks maybe Obamacare, if done a certain way, could have possibly worked in, in, in a functional way to be very helpful. But at the same time, when you have much simpler, it's like, Occam's razor in a way for policy. Uh, something like Medicare for all is better, uh, you know, and much simpler. So why go the convoluted route? Yeah. And the answer usually is there, there are special interests behind the convoluted route. I, I think, you know, these are good points. And I, I, you know, I'm a bit skeptical of like referendums, you know, like I think there is some 
there's like just allowing the government to govern uh, is probably better if you have like a proper democracy. Uh, but you know, you have to play with the hand you're dealt for the most part. Um, and no matter how many tries it takes to overturn, uh, what is it? Prop 13 in California, which basically like guts their ability to tax property. Uh, you know, we're just going to have to work that out. But on the question of like who wins and who doesn't in the, in, in this election and in other elections, I think that as I was saying before, like the, uh, I think that the the specific ideology of the candidate matters a lot less than people tend to think both in both directions. So, you know, so like I I see a lot of lefties trying to like pick out like the most lefty candidates who won. And I see a lot of centrists trying to pick, you know, it's like, oh, the all the centrist candidates won. It's like I don't think that's really true in either way. I think that it that that in terms of any individual election, it's it's down to the quality of the candidate, the sort of background conditions, the fundraising, you know, and like what sort of like other institutions you might be able to mobilize in your behalf. And um, the that's not to say that ideology doesn't matter. I think ideology comes in when it's time with if, if you're a governing party and it comes time for you to defend your record, you know, so like most concretely and most obviously in the case of recent history in 2010, as we were saying before, yeah, unemployment was 9.8% in November, 2010. And that's why, uh, Democrats got their, their, uh, asses handed to them. And the reason for that was because they made the stimulus too small. They didn't, uh, make, they didn't, add more stimulus after it was obvious that the first one wasn't big enough. And in fact, I just learned this the other day. They didn't even do a, uh, a reconciliation bill in 2011 when they could have basically set the economy up for, or sorry, a reconciliation bill in 2010 for fiscal year 2011. So where they could have just like larded it up with a lot of gimmies basically because like, Obama didn't want it. The blue dogs didn't want it. Um, and, you know, everyone was worried about the budget deficit. And the result was all those people lost. Obama didn't lose, but the yeah, blue dog got wiped so, out. Look, here's something I want to push back a little bit and see if we can sort something out. Because, uh, you know, on the one hand, I think it's obviously correct that most people don't have well sorted out political philosophies and ideologies where they, um, you know, can. Um, rationally distinguish between the, you know, the genealogy of ideas giving rise to why this candidate's views differ from the opposing party's candidate. And, and, uh, and this explains, for example, why there's a crossover between, you know, Bernie and Trump supporters in 2016, but also why you have people flipping from Obama to Trump and, and, and why you have any number of inconsistent views about you have people who, uh, hate government spending, but want all the, the entitlement programs. You have people who, uh, you know, back in the day during the Tea Party rallies, get your government hands off my Medicare, right? So you have a lot of confusion, a lot of people who, who don't have consistent or coherent ideological views or understandings or aren't necessarily committed to, to one or the other, and that these background conditions matter a lot. Okay. On the other hand, since the Reagan revolution, neoliberalism has subconsciously permeated the minds of like so many people that whether they realize it or not, uh, they live and breathe a, a logic and a moral logic um, of neoliberalism. That's starting to abate a little bit, but like the, the greed is good. The free market is, is good. The way to allocate resources without the government involvement is good. Like a lot of these priors seep in on both parties and, and, and independents alike. Uh, and, and you have the confusion where you get the, get your government hands off my Medicare because they have, they don't have, they don't even have the cognitive dissonance cause they don't have the knowledge sometimes to know that like there's, there is that conflict between the ideology they're spouting subconsciously about the government being the problem and this thing that they like, that they know is good in real life, you know? So, so, so I think like 
it's also true that there is a power to ideology, which is about both theory and a movement to certain types of action, which can be action to defend the market against government, you know, or to defend wars because, you know, uh, so ideology can be very powerful. And I think it would be a mistake to seed the battle for ideological uh, influence just because in any given particular race or wave uh, midterm election, uh, it might have more to do with a candidate's particular skills or, or the state it's in or the background conditions. Like what we can control, right, besides finding talented politicians, is aligning what people think their interests are with a coherent way to make sense of them that fits the leftist ideological framing because we think that framing is the actual proper way to understand the problems that that are causing so much suffering and the potential solutions yeah <clears throat> well i uh i guess i i don't you know i just want to avoid the um you know, the, 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 the tendency, which I think is very prevalent among all political traditions to confirmation bias. Yeah. To just be like, my way is the only way to win. And I don't think that's true. Um, nevertheless, I, I, I definitely do think that, um, in the, in the moment, uh, that we are in, you know, you, you look at where, uh, In a case where I would say like 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 neoliberalism is certainly on the decline, like it is not paying the dividends and is unpopular. Like very striking fact about the 2018 campaigns was that Republicans just straight up lied about their their healthcare position. They're like, we're going to defend uh, uh, protections for pre-existing conditions, and you know tr- Trump literally said at one point, I believe, I'll stick this in if I can. Uh, Democrats are going to destroy Obamacare. The Democrat plan would obliterate Obamacare. That's the level yeah. of like cognitive, like double speak up is down. Yeah, double speak that 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 they are at. And I but, think that if yeah. if you're you know in a case where we were talking about Gramsci before, you're in a case where like people are very confused, they are they are they are they are looking for leadership. They're looking for confidence. Um, and I think whereas, you know, a lot of lefties like myself sort of projected their own ideology onto Obama, who is a very effective politician, but actually... I did it too at the outset. I did it too. Quite conservative in terms of his actual beliefs. Uh, at the same time, um, if you are someone who can, you, you can articulate, you, you, you can... F- you can understand the, what people are thinking. You can articulate an explanation for why it's happening, and you can you can show people a path to fix that. I think that's a very powerful, you know, that's a very it is uh, strong potential card to play. I don't think it's dispositive. Well, it's not an automatic thing, but no, I think it's uh, so, something that that does matter. I agree. It's incredible. To me, and, and again, this is how you view history, I suppose, that Bernie Sanders did what he did, that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did what she did. The, the notion that being principled and lefty harms you necessarily is the thing that I think is important to debunk. Because yeah. if you, in other words, if any number of ways get you to victory, why not use the principled ways, right? Like, why not go with what's actually good for people? And, and the thing that I want to push against, I suppose, is this notion, and you get it from the fucking, like, technocratic, uh, liberal pundits and so many others that say, well, I don't know about Bernie's uh, Medicare for All plan. Show me the details. I don't know if the details are going to work. And just fucking nitpick the shit out of right something that hasn't even been like enacted let or or debated and like it's it's just a uh aborting the idea for something great before it's even had a chance to to come to life because of this fixation on the technocratic way of knowing what's best right in this very granular sense so so i just want 
that granular focus, which has, you know, Obama written all over it and just tinkering with the, the levers of, of government and, and the experts being the meritocratic class. I just want that to not win the ideological war in terms of what kind of candidates can run and, and the way that they run their campaigns. That's all. Yeah, that's fair. And I think, you know, I think it is fair to say that that not only are leftist candidates at least doing like the as average, like they're they're doing across the board, like about as average as well as as the sort of like more conservative candidates, the rest of the party is following them, you know, like like Democrats are talking about Medicare for all. Even Democrats who don't support Medicare for all being accused of supporting Medicare for all by their Republican opponents, it's not having any effect. Medicare for all is broadly popular. There's polls that it's like 70% of of uh, the population and like f- over half of Republicans in, some, in, in a poll I saw the other day support Medicare for all. And um, I guess, that, you know, it's like... that. I want to I, I I want to guard against wishful thinking, I guess. I, I don't think it's an automatic process that the leftiest candidate will always win automatically. I think that talent and and ability really does matter. You know, and I think it's something that Bernie has, it's some something that AOC has. Um but it's you know, it's something that you, you have to work you, you and you have to cultivate. Uh, at the same time, I think it definitely is the case that that's where the the fervent organizers are, the people who will knock on doors for you, um, for the most part. And I also think sure. that uh, in terms of, you know, maybe somewhat ironically, the technocratic details of how American society has evolved over the last decade – Lefty solutions are inarguably the superior solutions. Neoliberalism has been an absolute disaster for this country in terms of not just in terms of like equity and and like, you know, poverty and stuff in terms of raw growth and output and like your cynical business type of stuff like profits are high, but growth has been in the toilet. Absolutely fucked by austerity and the financial crisis and deregulation. You have lots of of companies making money by basically pillaging the rest of society. And the, the economy as a whole is in terrible shape. Even now, it's still not doing well. You know, we're, we're behind $3 trillion compared to where we would have been without the financial crisis. And we could fix that today if we wanted to with stimulus yes, that, policy. Right. No, that's right. And, and it reminds me, so the flip side, look, the flip side of the... Uh, the GOP, the Republicans, benefiting from being incompetent and terrible in government because their whole political philosophy suggests that government is terrible and not good. And so it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy when they have power and just confirm that government is terrible, right? Yeah. The flip side of that is if actual lefties and not neoliberals gain power and start instituting things like Medicare for all, that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy about the ways in which we can affirmatively help people through these ideological shifts. And that will further... So again, the whole notion that you can win in any number of ways is only true insofar as like, as far as people are concerned, nobody's done fuck all for them. Whether it's, you know, and that's why Bernie and Trump are so popular because like the establishment of both parties seemingly failed so many people in so many ways that they're like, doesn't seem to me that there's any particular way to go that's going to work. And so if we can show that there is, in fact, a certain set of ideas that do work, like when you actually help people and take care of their needs, that itself could become a self-fulfilling prophecy that gains more and more support. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, in fact, what happened in, uh, you know, in the 1930s and 1940s. People, exactly. people were people were adrift. They were rootless. They they were they were up for grabs to some degree, and uh, they were brought into a sort of broad center left coalition by the success of the New Deal as a political project. As Spross said when he was on the podcast last, uh, even the Jonathan Chase of the world, if they really think that the data and the evidence is how they should decide things, well. 
what if the data says socialism is what works well? <laughs> then <laughs> then even the even the chates have to become socialists, don't they? Well, they would if they actually listen to the data, but I think it's... Or if they listen to the podcast, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, they should, yeah. We got to get Chate on here. Let's do Let's it. See if we can come to blows. <laughs> everybody, everybody tweet Chate and tell him to come on the podcast. If all of you do it, every single one, it might happen. If you're verified, he doesn't uh, read his non-verified <laughs> mentions. He has a, a representative democracy, elitist, aristocratic uh, view of Twitter. He muted me when I said he should be cleaning toilets instead of writing articles, which is maybe a little bit offensive to, to the janitors out there. No offense no, to janitors. That's right. No, no janitors should have to work with Chait. That's true. That's a good point. Did I just ruin the chance that he would come on? Damn it. <laughs> Way to, Damn it. way to go. Way to go. You know, that what are you going to do? Well, we, we went live, and this is what happens when you go live. No. We'll do it live! Fuck it! So, yeah. What are you going to do? So, but Well, well I, you know, a lot to talk about on a continual basis, but uh, I think that was a, a pretty good crack uh, um, attempt to make meaning of the midterms, you know? Yeah. What do you think? It's a good first start, and we'll definitely be discussing this uh, uh, in the future yes so take heart take hope and get organizing folks thanks for listening yeah we'll talk to you very very shortly this is this was a special live episode so we'll see you in a, in a few all righty later on bye